Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain, Chapter 9 The River Pageant At nine in the evening the whole vast river-front of the palace was blazing with light. The river itself, as far as the eye could reach citywards, was so thickly covered with watermen's boats and with pleasure-barges, all fringed with colored lanterns and gently agitated by the waves, that it resembled a glowing and limitless garden of flowers, stirred to soft motion by summer winds. The grand terrace of stone steps leading down to the water, spacious enough to mass the army of a German principality upon, was a picture to see with its ranks of royal halberdiers in polished armor, and its troops of brilliantly costumed servitors flitting up and down and to and fro in the hurry of preparation. Presently a command was given, and immediately all living creatures vanished from the steps. Now the air was heavy with the hush of suspense and expectancy. As far as one's vision could carry, he might see the myriads of people in the boats rise up and shade their eyes from the glare of lanterns and torches and gazed toward the palace. A file of forty or fifty state barges drew up to the steps. They were richly gilt, and their lofty prows and sterns were elaborately carved. Some of them were decorated with banners and streamers, some with cloth of gold and arras, embroidered with coats of arms, others with silken flags that had numberless little silver bells fastened to them, which shook out tiny showers of joyous music whenever the breezes fluttered them. Others, of yet higher pretensions, since they belonged to nobles in the prince's immediate service, had their sides picturesquely fenced with shields gorgeously emblazoned with armorial bearings. Each state barge was towed by a tender. Besides the rowers, these tenders carried each a number of men's at arm in glossy helmet and breastplate, and a company of musicians. The advance guard of the expected procession now appeared in the great gateway, a troop of halberdiers. They were dressed in striped hose of black and tawny, velvet caps graced at the sides with silver roses, and doublets of murrey and blue cloth embroidered on the front and back with the three feathers, the prince's blazon, woven in gold. Their halbred staves were covered with crimson velvet, fastened with gilt nails, and ornamented with gold tassels. Filing off to the right and left, they formed two long lines extending from the gateway of the palace to the water's edge. A thick rayed cloth, or carpet, was then unfolded and laid down between them by attendants in the gold and crimson liveries of the prince. This done, a flourish of trumpets resounded from within. A lively prelude arose from the musicians on the water and two ushers with white wands marched with a slow and stately pace from the portal. They were followed by an officer bearing the civic mace, after whom came another carrying the city's sword, then several sergeants of the guard, in their full accoutrements and with badges on their sleeves, then the garter king-at-arms in his tabard, then several knights of the bath, each with a white lace on his sleeve, 
then their esquires, then the judges in their robes of scarlet and coifs, then the Lord High Chancellor of England in a robe of scarlet, open before and purfled with miniver, then a deputation of aldermen in their scarlet cloaks, and then the heads of the different civic companies in their robes of state. Now came twelve French gentlemen in splendid habiliments, consisting of poor points of white damask, barred with gold, short mantles of crimson velvet, lined with violet taffeta, and carnation-coloured haute de chose, and took their way down the steps. They were of the suite of the French ambassador, and were followed by twelve cavaliers of the suite of the Spanish ambassador, clothed in black velvet, unrelieved by any ornaments. Following these came several great English nobles with their attendants. There was a flourish of trumpets within, and the prince's uncle, the future great Duke of Somerset, emerged from the gateway, arrayed in a doublet of black cloth of gold, and a cloak of crimson satin flowered with gold and ribboned with nets of silver. He turned, doffed his plumed cap, bent his body in a low reverence, and began to step backward, bowing at each step. A prolonged trumpet-blast followed, and a proclamation, "'Way for the high and mighty, the Lord Edward, Prince of Wales!' High aloft, on the palace walls, a long line of red tongues of flame leapt forth, with a thunder-crash. The massed world on the river burst into a mighty roar of welcome, and Tom Canty, the cause and hero of it all, stepped into view and slightly bowed his princely head. He was magnificently habited in a doublet of white satin with a front-piece of purple cloth of tissue, powdered with diamonds and edged with ermine. Over this he wore a mantle of white cloth of gold, pounced with triple-feather crest, lined with blue satin, set with pearls and precious stones, and fastened with a clasp of brilliance. About his neck hung the Order of the Garter, and several princely foreign orders, and wherever the light fell upon him jewels responded with a blinding flash. O oh, Tom Canty, born in a hovel, bred in the gutters of London, familiar with rags and dirt and misery, what a spectacle is this! End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 The Prince in the Toils we left John Canty dragging the rightful prince into Offal Court, with a noisy and delighted mob at his heels. There was but one person in it who offered a pleading word for the captive, and he was not heeded. He was hardly even heard, so great was the turmoil. The prince continued to struggle for freedom, and to rage against the treatment he was suffering, until John Canty lost what little patience was left him, and raised his oaken cudgel in a sudden fury over the prince's head. The single pleader for the lad sprang to stop the man's arm, and the blow descended upon his own wrist. Canty roared out, "'Thou'lt meddle, wilt thou? Then have thy reward!' His gudgel crashed down upon the meddler's head. There was a groan, a dim form sank to the ground among the feet of the crowd, and the next moment it lay there in the dark, alone. The mob pressed on, their enjoyment nothing disturbed by this episode. Presently the prince found himself in John Canty's abode, with the door closed against the outsiders. By the vague light of a tallow-candle which was thrust into a bottle, he made out the main features of the loathsome den, and also the occupants of it. Two frowsy girls and a middle-aged woman cowered against the wall in one corner, with the aspect of animals habituated to harsh usage and expecting and dreading it now. From another corner stole a withered hag with streaming gray hair and malignant eyes. 
John Canty said to this one, "'Tarry, there's fine mummeries here. Mar them not till thou'st enjoy them. Then let thy hand be heavy as thou wilt. Stand forth, lad. Now say thy foolery again, and thou'st not forget it. Name thy name. Who art thou?' The insulted blood mounted to the little prince's cheek once more, and he lifted a steady and indignant gaze to the man's face, and said, "'Tis but ill-breeding in such as thou to command me to speak. I tell thee now, as I told thee before, I am Edward, Prince of Wales, and none other." The stunning surprise of this reply nailed the hag's feet to the floor where she stood, and almost took her breath. She stared at the prince in stupid amazement, which so amused her ruffianly son that he burst into a roar of laughter. But the effect on Tom Canty's mother and sisters was different. Their dread of bodily injury gave way at once to distress of a different sort. They ran forward with woe and dismay in their faces, exclaiming, "'Oh, poor Tom! Poor lad!' The mother fell on her knees before the prince, put her hands upon his shoulders, and gazed yearningly into his face through her rising tears. And then she said, "'Oh, my poor boy! Thy foolish reading hath wrought its woeful work at last, and ta'en thy wit away. And why didst thou cleave to it, when I so warned thee against it? Thou'st broke thy mother's heart!' The prince looked into her face, and said gently, "'Thy son is well, and hath not lost his wits, good dame. Comfort thee. Let me to the palace where he is, and straightway will the king my father restore him to thee.' "'The king thy father? Oh, my child, unsay these words, that be freighted with death for thee, and ruin for all that be near to thee. Shake off this gruesome dream. Call back thy poor wandering memory. Look upon me.' Am I not thy mother, that bore thee, and loveth thee?" The prince shook his head, and reluctantly said, "'God knoweth, I am loath to grieve thy heart, but truly have I never looked upon thy face before.' The woman sank back to a sitting posture on the floor, and, covering her eyes with her hands, gave way to heart-broken sobs and wailings. "'Let the show go on!' shouted Canty. "'What, Nan? What, Bet? Mannerless wenches! Will ye stand in the prince's presence? Upon your knees, ye proper scum, and do him reverence!" He followed this with another horse-laugh. The girls began to plead timidly for their brother, and Nan said, "'And thou wilt but let him to bed, father. Rest and sleep will heal his madness. Prithee do.' "'Do, father,' said Bet. "'He is more worn than is his wont. To-morrow will he be himself again, and will beg with diligence, and come not empty home again.' This remark sobered the father's joviality, and brought his mind to business. He turned angrily upon the prince, and said, "'The morrow must we pay two pennies to him that owns this hole. Two pennies, Marquis! All this money for a half-year's rent, else out of this we go. Show what thou'st gathered, with thy lazy begging!' The prince said, "'Offend me not with thy sordid matters. I tell thee again, I am the king's son.' A sounding blow upon the prince's shoulder from Canty's broad palm sent him staggering into goodwife Canty's arms, who clasped him to her breast, and sheltered him from a pelting rain of cuffs and slaps by interposing her own person. The frightened girls retreated to their corner, but the grandmother stepped eagerly forward to assist her son. The prince sprang away from Mrs. Canty, exclaiming, "'Thou shalt not suffer for me, madam. Let these swine do their will upon me alone.' 
This speech infuriated the swine to such a degree that they set about their work without waste of time. Between them they belabored the boy right soundly, and then gave the girls and their mother a beating for showing sympathy for the victim. "'Now,' said Canty, "'to bed, all of you! The entertainment has tired me!' The light was put out, and the family retired. As soon as the snorings of the head of the house and his mother showed that they were asleep, the young girls crept to where the prince lay and covered him tenderly from the cold with straw and rags, and their mother crept to him also, and stroked his hair and cried over him, whispering broken words of comfort and compassion in his ear the while. She had saved a morsel for him to eat, also, but the boy's pains had swept away all appetite, at least for black and tasteless crusts. He was touched by her brave and costly defence of him, and by her commiseration, and he thanked her in very noble and princely words, and begged her to go to her sleep and try to forget her sorrows. And he added that the king, his father, would not let her loyal kindness and devotion go unrewarded. This return to his madness broke her heart anew, and she strained him to her breast again and again, and then went back, drowned in tears, to her bed. As she lay thinking and mourning, the suggestion began to creep into her mind that there was an undefinable something about this boy that was lacking in Tom Canty, mad or sane. She could not describe it, she could not tell just what it was, and yet her sharp mother instinct seemed to detect it and perceive it. What if the boy were really not her son, after all? Oh, absurd! She almost smiled at the idea, spite of her griefs and troubles. No matter, she found that it was an idea that would not down, but persisted in haunting her. It pursued her, it harassed her, it clung to her, and refused to be put away or ignored. At last she perceived that there was not going to be any peace for her until she should devise a test that should prove, clearly and without question, whether this lad was her son or not, and so banish these wearing and worrying doubts. Ah, yes, this was plainly the right way out of the difficulty. Therefore she set her wits to work at once to contrive that test. But it was an easier thing to propose than to accomplish. She turned over in her mind one promising test after another, but was obliged to relinquish them all. None of them were absolutely sure, absolutely perfect, and an imperfect one could not satisfy her. Evidently she was racking her head in vain. It seemed manifest that she must give the matter up. While this depressing thought was passing through her mind, her ear caught the regular breathing of the boy, and she knew he had fallen asleep. And while she listened, the measured breathing was broken by a soft, startled cry, such as one utters in a troubled dream. This chance occurrence furnished her instantly with a plan worth all her labored tests combined. She at once set herself feverishly, but noiselessly, to work, to relight her candle, muttering to herself, had I but seen him then, I should have known. Since that day, when he was little, that the powder burst in his face, he hath never been startled of a sudden out of his dreams or out of his thinkings, but he hath cast his hand before his eyes, even as he did that day, and not as others would do it, with the palm inward, but always with the palm turned outward. I have seen it a hundred times, and it hath never varied nor ever failed. Yes, I shall soon know, now. By this time she had crept to the slumbering boy's side, with the candle shaded in her hand. She bent heedfully and warily over him, scarcely breathing in her suppressed excitement, and suddenly flashed the light in his face and struck the floor by his ear with her knuckles. The sleeper's eyes sprung wide open, and he cast a startled stare about him, but he made no special movement with his hands. The poor woman was smitten almost helpless with surprise and grief. 
but she contrived to hide her emotions, and to soothe the boy to sleep again. Then she crept apart, and communed miserably with herself upon the disastrous result of her experiment. She tried to believe that her Tom's madness had banished this habitual gesture of his, but she could not do it. "'No,' she said, "'his hands are not mad. They could not unlearn so old a habit in so brief a time. Oh, this is a heavy day for me!' Still hope was as stubborn now as doubt had been before. She could not bring herself to accept the verdict of the test. She must try the thing again. The failure must have been only an accident. So she startled the boy out of his sleep a second and a third time at intervals, with the same result which had marked the first test. Then she dragged herself to bed and fell sorrowfully asleep, saying, "'But I cannot give him up. Oh, no, I cannot, I cannot. He must be my boy.' The poor mother's interruptions having ceased, and the prince's pains having gradually lost their power to disturb him, utter weariness at last sealed his eyes in a profound and restful sleep. Hour after hour slipped away, and still he slept like the dead. Thus four or five hours passed. Then his stupor began to lighten. Presently, while half asleep and half awake, he murmured, "'Sir William!' After a moment, "'Ho! Oh, Sir William Herbert! Hie thee hither, and list to the strangest dream that ever! Sir William, dost hear? Man, I did think me changed to a pauper, and—ho, oh, there guards! Sir William! What? Is there no groom of the chamber in waiting? Alack, it shall go hard with—' "'What aileth thee?' asked a whisper near him. "'Who art thou calling?' "'Sir William Herbert, who art thou?' "'I? Who should I be but thy sister Nan? Oh, Tom, I had forgot! Thou'rt mad yet! Poor lad, thou'rt mad yet! Would I had never woke to know it again!' but prithee master thy tongue, lest we all be beaten till we die." The startled prince sprang partly up, but a sharp reminder from his stiffened bruises brought him to himself, and he sunk back among his foul straw with a groan and the ejaculation, "'Alas! it was no dream, then!' In a moment all the heavy sorrow and misery which sleep had banished were upon him again and he realized that he was no longer a petted prince in a palace, with the adoring eyes of a nation upon him, but a pauper, an outcast, clothed in rags, prisoner in a den fit only for beasts, and consorting with beggars and thieves. In the midst of his grief he began to be conscious of hilarious noises and shoutings, apparently but a block or two away. The next moment there were several sharp raps at the door. John Canty ceased from snoring, and said, "'Ho, knocketh! What wilt thou?' A voice answered, Knowst thou who it was thou laid thy cudgel on? No, neither know I nor care. Belike thou'lt change thy note eftsoons, and thou would save thy neck, nothing but flight away, stead thee. The man is this moment delivering up the ghost. Tis the priest, Father Andrew. God a mercy! exclaimed Canty. He roused his family and hoarsely commanded, Up with all of ye and fly, or bide where ye are and perish. Scarcely five minutes later the Canty household were in the street and flying for their lives. John Canty held the prince by the wrist, and hurried him along the dark way, giving him this caution in low voice, "'Mind thy tongue, thou mad fool, and speak not our name. I will choose me a new name speedily to throw the law's dogs off the scent. Mind thy tongue, I tell ye!' He growled these words to the rest of the family. "'If it so chance that we be separated, let each make for London Bridge.' Whoso findeth himself as far as the last linen-draper's shop on the bridge, let him tarry there till the others be come. Then will we flee into Southwark together." 
At this moment the party burst suddenly out of darkness into light, and not only into light, but into the midst of a multitude of singing, dancing, and shouting people massed together on the river's frontage. There was a line of bonfires stretching as far as one could see up and down the Thames. London Bridge was illuminated. Southwark Bridge, likewise. The entire river was aglow with a flash and sheen of colored lights, and constant explosions of fireworks filled the skies with an intricate commingling of shooting splendors and a thick rain of dazzling sparks that almost turned night into day. Everywhere were crowds of revelers. All London seemed to be at large. John Canty delivered himself of a furious curse and commanded a retreat, but it was too late. He and his tribe were swallowed up in that swarming hive of humanity, and hopelessly separated from each other in an instant. We are not considering that the prince was one of his tribe. Canty still kept his grip upon him. The prince's heart was beating high with hopes of escape now. A burly waterman, considerably exalted with liquor, found himself rudely shoved by Canty in his efforts to plough through the crowd. He laid his great hand on Canty's shoulder, and said, "'Nay, whither so fast, friend? Dost canker thy soul with sordid business, when all that be leal men and true make holiday?' "'Mine affairs are mine own, and they concern thee not,' answered Canty roughly. "'Take away thy hand, and let me pass.' "'Sith that is thy humour, thou'lt not pass, till thou'st drunk to the Prince of Wales, I tell thee that,' said the waterman, barring the way resolutely. "'Give me the cup, then, and make speed, make speed!' Other revellers were interested by this time. They cried out, "'The loving cup! The loving cup! Make the sour knave drink the loving cup, else we feed him to the fishes!' So a huge loving cup was brought, the waterman grasping it by one of its handles, and with his other hand bearing up the end of an imaginary napkin, presented it in due and ancient form to Canty, who had to grasp the opposite handle with one of his hands, and take off the lid with the other, according to the ancient custom." Footnote. The Loving Cup The Loving Cup and the peculiar ceremonies observed in drinking from it are older than English history. It is thought that both are Danish importations. As far back as knowledge goes, the Loving Cup has always been drunk at English banquets. Tradition explains the ceremonies in this way. In the rude ancient times it was deemed a wise precaution to have both hands of both drinkers employed lest while the pledger pledged his love and fidelity to the pledgee, the pledgee take that opportunity to slip a dirk into him. End of footnote. This left the prince hand-free for a second, of course. He wasted no time, but dived among the forest of legs about him and disappeared. In another moment he could not have been harder to find under that tossing sea of life if its billows had been the Atlantic's, and he a lost sixpence. He very soon realized this fact, and straightway busied himself about his own affairs without further thought of John Canty. He quickly realized another thing, too, to wit, that a spurious Prince of Wales was being feasted by the city in his stead. He easily concluded that the pauper lad, Tom Canty, had deliberately taken advantage of his stupendous opportunity and become a usurper. Therefore there was but one course to pursue—find his way to the Guildhall, make himself known, and denounce the impostor. He also made up his mind that Tom should be allowed a reasonable time for spiritual preparation, and then be hanged, drawn and quartered, according to the law and usage of the day, in cases of high treason. End of chapter 10 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE PRINCE AND THE PAUPER by Mark Twain CHAPTER Eleven, 
at Guildhall. The royal barge, attended by its gorgeous fleet, took its stately way down the Thames through the wilderness of illuminated boats. The air was laden with music, the river-banks were beruffled with joy-flames. The distant city lay in a soft luminous glow from its countless invisible bonfires. Above it rose many a slender spire into the sky, encrusted with sparkling lights, wherefore in their remoteness they seemed like bejeweled lances thrust aloft. As the fleet swept along, it was greeted from the banks with a continuous hoarse roar of cheers and the ceaseless flash and boom of artillery. To Tom Canty, half buried in his silken cushions, these sounds and this spectacle were a wonder unspeakably sublime and astonishing. To his little friends at his side, the Princess Elizabeth and the Lady Jane Grey, they were nothing. Arrived at the Dowgate, the fleet was towed up the limpid Wallbrook, whose channel has now been for two centuries buried out of sight under acres of buildings, to Bucklersbury, past houses and under bridges, populous with merry-makers, and brilliantly lighted, and at last came to a halt in a basin, where now is Barge Yard, in the centre of the ancient city of London. Tom disembarked, and he and his gallant procession crossed Cheapside, and made a short march through the old Jewry and Bassinghall Street to the Guildhall. Tom and his little ladies were received with due ceremony by the Lord Mayor and the Fathers of the City, in their gold chains and scarlet robes of state, and conducted to a rich canopy of state at the head of the great hall, preceded by heralds making proclamation, and by the mace and the city sword. The lords and ladies who were to attend upon Tom and his two small friends took their places behind their chairs. At a lower table the court grandees and other guests of noble degree were seated, with the magnates of the city. The commoners took places at a multitude of tables on the main floor of the hall. From their lofty vantage-ground the giants Gog and Magog, the ancient guardians of the city, contemplated the spectacle below them with eyes grown familiar to it in forgotten generations. There was a bugle-blast and a proclamation and a fat butler appeared in a high perch in the leftward wall, followed by his servitors, bearing with impressive solemnity a royal baron of beef, smoking hot and ready for the knife. After grace, Tom being instructed, rose, and the whole house with him, and drank from a portly golden loving-cup with the Princess Elizabeth. From her it passed to the Lady Jane, and then traversed the general assemblage, so the banquet began. By midnight the revelry was at its height. Now came one of those picturesque spectacles so admired in that old day. A description of it is still extant in the quaint wording of a chronicler who witnessed it. Space being made, presently entered a baron and an earl apparelled after the Turkish fashion, in long robes of bodkin powdered with gold, hats on their heads of crimson velvet, with great rolls of gold, girded with two swords, called scimitars, hanging by great baudricks of gold. Next came yet another baron and another earl, in two long gowns of yellow satin, traversed with white satin, and in every bend of white was a bend of crimson satin, after the fashion of Russia, with furred hats of grey on their heads, either of them having a hatchet in their hands, and boots with pikes, points a foot long turned up, and after them came a knight, then the Lord High Admiral, and with him five nobles, in doublets of crimson velvet, voided low on the back, and before to the canal bone, 
laced on the breasts with chains of silver, and over that short cloaks of crimson satin, and on their heads hats after the dancers' fashion, with pheasants' feathers in them. These were apparelled after the fashion of Prussia. The torch-bearers, which were about an hundred, were apparelled in crimson satin and green, like moors, their faces black. Next came in a mummerai, then the minstrels, which were disguised, danced, and the lords and ladies did wildly dance also, that it was a pleasure to behold. And while Tom, in his high seat, was gazing upon this wild dancing, lost in admiration of the dazzling commingling of kaleidoscopic colours which the whirling turmoil of gaudy figures below him presented, the ragged but real little Prince of Wales was proclaiming his rights and his wrongs, denouncing the impostor, and clamouring for admission at the gates of Guildhall. The crowd enjoyed this episode prodigiously, and pressed forward and craned their necks to see the small rioter. Presently they began to taunt him and mock at him, purposely to goad him into a higher and still more entertaining fury. Tears of mortification sprung to his eyes, but he stood his ground and defied the mob right royally. Other taunts followed, added mocking stung him, and he exclaimed, "'I tell ye again, you pack of unmannerly curs, I am the Prince of Wales, and all forlorn and friendless as I be, with none to give me word of grace or help me in my need, yet will not I be driven from my ground, but will maintain it.' Though thou be prince, or no prince, tis all one. Thou beest a gallant lad, and not friendless neither. Here stand I by thy side to prove it, and mind I tell thee thou mightst have a worser friend than Miles Hendon, and yet not tire thy legs with seeking. Rest thy small jaw, my child. I talk the language of these base kennel-rats like to a very native." The speaker was a sort of Don Caesar de Bazan, in dress, aspect, and bearing. He was tall, trim-built, muscular. His doublet and trunks were of rich material, but faded and threadbare, and their gold-lace adornments were sadly tarnished. His ruff was rumpled and damaged. The plume in his slouched hat was broken, and had a bedraggled and disreputable look. At his side he wore a long rapier in a rusty iron sheath. His swaggering carriage marked him at once as a ruffer of the camp. The speech of this fantastic figure was received with an explosion of jeers and laughter. Some cried, "'Tis another prince in disguise! Wear thy tongue, friend! Belike he is dangerous! Marry, he looketh it! Mark his eye! Pluck the lad from him! To the horse-pond with the cub!" Instantly a hand was laid upon the prince under the impulse of this happy thought, as instantly the stranger's long sword was out and the meddler went to the earth under a sounding thump with the flat of it. The next moment a score of voices shouted, "'Kill the dog! Kill him! Kill him!' and the mob closed in on the warrior, who backed himself against a wall, and began to lay about him with his long weapon like a madman. His victims sprawled this way and that, but the mob-tide poured over their prostrate forms, and dashed itself against the champion with undiminished fury. His moments seemed numbered, his destruction certain, when suddenly a trumpet-blast sounded, a voice shouted, "'Way for the king's messenger!' and a troop of horsemen came charging down upon the mob, who fled out of harm's reach as fast as their legs could carry them. The bold stranger caught up the prince in his arms, and was soon far away from danger and the multitude. Return we within the guild-hall. Suddenly, high above the jubilant roar and thunder of the revel, broke the clear peal of a bugle-note. There was instant silence. A deep hush. Then a single voice rose, that of the messenger from the palace. 
and began to pipe forth a proclamation, the whole multitude standing, listening. The closing words, solemnly pronounced, were, THE KING IS DEAD. The great assemblage bent their heads upon their breasts with one accord, remained so, in profound silence a few moments, then all sunk upon their knees in a body, stretched out their hands toward Tom, and a mighty shout burst forth that seemed to shake the building. LONG LIVE THE KING! Poor Tom's dazed eyes wandered abroad over this stupefying spectacle, and finally rested dreamily upon the kneeling princesses beside him, a moment, then upon the Earl of Hertford. A sudden purpose dawned in his face. He said in a low tone at Lord Hertford's ear, "'Answer me truly, on thy faith and honour. Uttered I here a command, the which none but a king might hold privilege and prerogative to utter. Would such commandment be obeyed, and none rise up to say me nay?' "'None, my liege, in all these realms. In thy person bides the majesty of England. Thou art the king. Thy word is law." Tom responded in a strong, earnest voice, with great animation. "'Then shall the king's law be law of mercy, from this day, and never more be law of blood. Up from thy knees and away, to the tower, and say the king decrees the Duke of Norfolk shall not die.'" Footnote. The Duke of Norfolk's narrow escape. Had Henry the Eighth survived a few hours longer, his order for the Duke's execution would have been carried into effect. But news being carried to the Tower that the King himself had expired that night, the lieutenant deferred obeying the warrant, and it was not thought advisable by the Council to begin a new reign by the death of the greatest nobleman in the kingdom, who had been condemned by a sentence so unjust and tyrannical. Hume's History of England, Volume 3, page 307. End of footnote. The words were caught up and carried eagerly from lip to lip far and wide over the hall, and as Hertford hurried from the presence, another prodigious shout burst forth. The reign of blood is ended! Long live Edward, King of England! End of chapter 11 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain Chapter 12 The Prince and His Deliverer As soon as Mile Hendon and the little prince were clear of the mob, they struck down through back lanes and alleys toward the river. Their way was unobstructed until they approached London Bridge. Then they ploughed into the multitude again, Hendon keeping a fast grip upon the prince's—no, the king's—wrist. The tremendous news was already abroad, and the boy learned it from a thousand voices at once. The king is dead. The tidings struck a chill to the heart of the poor little waif, and sent a shudder through his frame. He realized the greatness of his loss, and was filled with a bitter grief. For the grim tyrant who had been such a terror to others had always been gentle with him. The tears sprung to his eyes, and blurred all objects. For an instant he felt himself the most forlorn, outcast, and forsaken of God's creatures. Then another cry shook the night with its far-reaching thunders, "'Long live King Edward the Sixth!' And this made his eyes kindle, 
and thrilled him with pride to his fingers' ends. Ah, he thought, how grand and strange it seems! I am king! Our friends threaded their way slowly through the throngs upon the bridge. This structure, which had stood for six hundred years, and had been a noisy and populous thoroughfare all that time, was a curious affair, for a closely packed rank of stores and shops, with family quarters overhead, stretched along both sides of it, from one bank of the river to the other. The bridge was a sort of town to itself. It had its inn, its beer-houses, its bakeries, its haberdasheries, its food-markets, its manufacturing industries, and even its church. It looked upon the two neighbours which it linked together, London and Southwark, as being well enough as suburbs, but not otherwise particularly important. It was a close corporation, so to speak. It was a narrow town, of a single street a fifth of a mile long. Its population was but a village population, and everybody in it knew all his fellow-townsmen intimately, and had known their fathers and mothers before them, and all their little family affairs into the bargain. It had its aristocracy, of course, its fine old families of butchers and bakers and what not, who had occupied the same old premises for five or six hundred years, and knew the great history of the bridge from beginning to end, and all its strange legends, and who always talked bridgy talk, and thought bridgy thoughts, and lied in a long, level, direct, substantial, bridgy way. It was just the sort of population to be narrow and ignorant and self-conceited. Children were born on the bridge, were reared there, grew to old age, and finally died, without ever having set a foot upon any part of the world but London Bridge alone. Such people would naturally imagine that the mighty and interminable procession which moved through its streets night and day, with its confused roar of shouts and cries, its neighings and bellowings and bleatings, and its muffled thunder-tramp, was the one great thing in this world, and themselves somehow the proprietors of it. And so they were, in effect. At least they could exhibit it from their windows, and did, for a consideration, whenever a returning king or hero gave it a fleeting splendour, for there was no place like it for affording a long, straight, uninterrupted view of marching columns. Men born and reared upon the bridge found life unendurably dull and inane elsewhere. History tells of one of these who left the bridge at the age of seventy-one and retired to the country. But he could only fret and toss in his bed. He could not go to sleep. The deep stillness was so painful, so awful, so oppressive. When he was worn out with it, at last, he fled back to his old home, a lean and haggard spectre, and fell peacefully to rest and pleasant dreams under the lulling music of the lashing waters and the boom and crash and thunder of London Bridge. In the times of which we are writing, the bridge furnished object-lessons in English history for its children, namely the livid and decaying heads of renowned men impaled upon iron spikes atop of its gateways. But we digress. Hendon's lodgings were in the little inn on the bridge. As he neared the door with his small friend, a rough voice said, "'So thou'rt come at last! Thou'll not escape again, I warrant thee! And if pounding thy bones to a pudding can teach thee somewhat, thou'lt not keep us waiting another time, mayhap!' And John Canty put out his hand to seize the boy. Miles Hendon stepped in the way and said, "'Not too fast, friend! 
Thou art needlessly rough, methinks. What is the lad to thee? If it be any business of thine to make and meddle in others' affairs, he is my son. "'Tis a lie!' cried the little king, hotly. "'Boldly said, and I believe thee, whether thy small headpiece be sound or cracked, my boy. But whether this scurvy ruffian be thy father or no, tis all one. He shall not have thee to beat thee and abuse, according to his threat, so thou prefer to abide with me.' i do i do i know him not i loathe him and will die before i will go with him then tis settled and there is naught more to say we will see as to that exclaimed john canty striding past hendon to get at the boy by force shall he if thou do but touch him thou animated offal i will spit thee like a goose said hendon barring the way and laying his hand upon his sword hilt canty drew back now mark ye continued hendon I took this lad under my protection when a mob of such as thou would have mishandled him, mayhap killed him. Dost imagine I will desert him now to a worser fate? For whether thou art his father or no, and sooth to say I think it is a lie, a decent swift death were better for such a lad than life in such brute hands as thine. So go thy ways, and set quick about it, for I like not much bandying of words, being not over-patient in my nature." John Canty moved off, muttering threats and curses, and was swallowed from sight in the crowd. Hendon ascended three flights of stairs to his room, with his charge, after ordering a meal to be sent thither. It was a poor apartment, with a shabby bed and some odds and ends of old furniture in it, and was vaguely lighted by a couple of sickly candles. The little king dragged himself to the bed and lay down upon it, almost exhausted with hunger and fatigue. He had been on his feet a good part of a day and a night, for it was now two or three o'clock in the morning, and had eaten nothing meantime. He murmured drowsily, "'Prithee, call me when the table is spread,' and sunk into a deep sleep immediately. A smile twinkled in Hendon's eyes, and he said to himself, "'By the mass the little beggar takes to one's quarters, and usurps one's bed with as natural and easy a grace as if he owned them, with never a by your leave, or so please it you, or anything of the sort.' In his diseased ravings he called himself the Prince of Wales, and bravely doth he keep up the character. Poor little friendless rat! Doubtless his mind has been disordered with ill-usage. Well, I will be his friend. I have saved him, and it draweth me strongly to him. Already I love the bold-tongued little rascal. How soldier-like he faced the smutty rabble, and flung back his high defiance! And what a comely, sweet and gentle face he hath! now that sleep hath conjured away his troubles and its griefs. I will teach him, I will cure his malady, yea, I will be his elder brother, and care for him, and watch over him, and whoso would shame him or do him hurt, may order his shroud, for though I be burnt for it, he shall need it. He bent over the boy, and contemplated him with kind and pitying interest, tapping the young cheek tenderly, and smoothing back the tangled curls with his great brown hand. A slight shiver passed over the boy's form. Hendon muttered, "'See, now, how like a man it was, to let him lie here uncovered and fill his body with deadly rooms. Now what shall I do? To wake him to take him up and put him within the bed, and he sorely needeth sleep.' He looked about for extra covering, but finding none, doffed his doublet and wrapped the lad in it, saying, "'I am used to nipping air and scant apparel. Tis little I shall mind the cold.' then walked up and down the room to keep his blood in motion, soliloquizing as before. His injured mind persuades him he is Prince of Wales. 
"'Twill be odd to have a Prince of Wales still with us, now that he that was the Prince is Prince no more but King. For this poor mind is set upon the one fantasy, and will not reason out that now it should cast by the Prince and call itself the King. If my father liveth still after these seven years that I have heard naught from him in my foreign dungeon, he will welcome the poor lad, and give him generous shelter for my sake. So will my good elder brother, Arthur, my other brother, Hugh, but I will crack his crown, and he interfere, the fox-hearted, ill-conditioned animal. Yes, thither will we fare, and straightway, too." A servant entered with a smoking meal, disposed it upon a small deal-table, placed the chairs, and took his departure, leaving such cheap lodgers as these to wait upon themselves. The door slammed after him, and the noise woke the boy, who sprung to a sitting-posture, and shot a glad glance about him. Then a grieved look came into his face, and he murmured to himself with a deep sigh, "'Alack! It was but a dream! Woe is me!' Next he noticed Miles Hendon's doublet, glanced from that to Hendon, comprehended the sacrifice that had been made for him, and said gently, "'Thou art good to me! Yes, th thou art very good to me! Take it and put it on! I shall not need it more!' Then he got up and walked to the washstand in the corner, and stood there waiting. Hendon said in a cheery voice, "'We'll have a right hearty sup and bite now, for everything is savoury and smoking hot, and that and thy nap together will make thee a little man again, never fear.' The boy made no answer, but bent a steady look that was filled with grave surprise, and also somewhat touched with impatience upon the tall knight of the sword. Hendon was puzzled, and said, "'What's amiss?' "'Good sir, I would wash me.' "'Oh, is that all? Ask no permission of Miles Hendon, for aught thou cravest. Make thyself perfectly free here, and welcome, with all that are his belongings." Still the boy stood, and moved not. More he tapped the floor once or twice with his small impatient foot. Hendon was wholly perplexed. Said he, "'Bless us! What is it?' "'Prithee, pour the water, and make not so many words.' Hendon, suppressing a hoarse laugh, and saying to himself, "'By all the saints, but this is admirable,' stepped briskly forward, and did the small insolence bidding, then stood by in a sort of stupefaction until the command, "'Come! The towel!' woke him sharply up. He took up a towel from under the boy's nose, and handed it to him without comment. He now proceeded to comfort his own face with a wash, and while he was at it his adopted child seated himself at the table, and prepared to fall too. Hendon dispatched his ablutions with alacrity, then drew back the other chair, and was about to place himself at table when the boy said indignantly, "'Forbear! Would sit in the presence of the king?' This blow staggered Hendon to his foundations. He muttered to himself, "'Lo, the poor thing's madness is up with a time. It hath changed with a great change that is come to the realm, and now, in fancy, is he king. Good lack! I must humour the conceit, too. There is no other way.' Faith, he would order me to the tower else." And pleased with this jest, he removed the chair from the table, took his stand behind the king, and proceeded to wait upon him in the courtliest way he was capable of. While the king ate, a grateful sense of refreshment both of body and spirit began to steal over him. The rigour of his royal dignity relaxed a little, and with his growing contentment came a desire to talk. He said, "'I think thou callest thyself Miles Hendon, if I heard thee right. "'Yes, sire,' Miles replied, then observed to himself, "'If I must humour the poor lad's madness, I must sire him, I must majesty him, 
I must not go by halves. I must stick at nothing that belongeth to the part I play, else shall I play it ill and work evil to this charitable and kindly cause. The king warmed his heart with a second glass of wine, and said, I would know thee. Tell me thy story. Thou hast a gallant way with thee, and a noble. Art nobly born? We are of the tale of the nobility, good your majesty. My father is a baronet, one of the smaller lords, by knight service. Note, he refers to the order of baronet or baronets, the baron minor, as distinct from the parliamentary barons, not, it need hardly be said, the baronets of later creation. End of note. Sir Richard Hendon, of Hendon Hall, by Monk's Home in Kent. The name has escaped my memory. Go on, tell me thy story. "'Tis not much, your majesty, yet perchance it may beguile a short half-hour for want of a better. My father, Sir Richard, is very rich, and of a most generous nature. My mother died whilst I was yet a boy. I have two brothers, Arthur, my elder, with a soul like to his father's, and Hugh, younger than I, a mean spirit, covetous, treacherous, vicious, underhanded, a reptile. Such was he from the cradle. Such was he ten years past, when I last saw him. A ripe rascal at nineteen. I being twenty then, and Arthur twenty-two. There is none other of us but the Lady Edith, my cousin. She was sixteen then, beautiful, gentle, good, the daughter of an earl, the last of her race, heiress of a great fortune and a lapsed title. My father was her guardian. I loved her, and she loved me. But she was betrothed to Arthur from the cradle, and Sir Richard would not suffer the contract to be broken. Arthur loved another maid, and bade us be of good cheer, and hold fast to the hope that delay and luck together would some day give success to our several causes. Hugh loved the Lady Edith's fortune, though in truth, he said, it was herself he loved. But then twas his way, alway, to say the one thing and mean the other. But he lost his arts upon the girl. He could deceive my father, but none else. My father loved him best of us all, and trusted and believed him, for he was the youngest child, and others hated him, these qualities being in all ages sufficient to win a parent's dearest love. And he had a smooth, persuasive tongue, with an admirable gift of lying. And these be qualities which do mightily assist a blind affection to cousin itself. It was wild, in truth I might go yet farther and say very wild, though twas a wildness of an innocent sort, since it hurt none but me, brought shame to none, nor loss, nor had it in any taint of crime or baseness, or what might not beseem mine honourable degree. Yet did my brother Hugh turn these faults to good account, he seeing that our brother Arthur's health was but indifferent, and hoping the worst might work him profit where I swept out of the path. So, but twere a long tale, good my liege, and little worth the telling. Briefly, then, this brother did deftly magnify my faults, and make them crimes, ending his base work with finding a silken ladder in mine apartments, conveyed thither by his own means, and did convince my father by this, and suborned evidence of servants and others lying knaves, that I was minded to carry off my Edith and marry with her, in rank defiance of his will. Three years of banishment from home and England might make a soldier and a man of me, my father said, and teach me some degree of wisdom. I fought out my long probation in the Continental Wars, tasting sumptuously of hard knocks, privation, and adventure. 
but in my last battle I was taken captive, and during the seven years that have waxed and waned since then, a foreign dungeon hath harboured me. Through wit and courage I won to the free air at last, and fled thither straight, and am but just arrived, right poor in purse and raiment, and poorer still in knowledge of what these dull seven years have wrought at Hendon Hall, its people and belongings. So please you, sir, my meagre tale is told." "'Thou hast been shamefully abused,' said the little king, with a flashing eye. "'But I will write thee, by the cross will I. The king hath said it.' Then, fired by the story of Miles' wrongs, he loosed his tongue and poured the history of his own recent misfortunes into the ears of his astonished listener. When he had finished, Miles said to himself, "'Lo, what an imagination he hath! Verily this is no common mind, else, crazed or sane, it could not weave so straight and gaudy a tale as this out of the airy nothings wherewith it hath wrought this curious romaunt. Poor ruined little head, it shall not lack friend or shelter whilst I bide with the living. He shall never leave my side. He shall be my pet, my little comrade. He shall be cured. I made whole and sound. Then will he make himself a name, and proud shall I be to say, Yes, he is mine. I took him, a homeless little ragamuffin, but I saw what was in him, and I said his name would be heard some day. Behold him, observe him. Was I right? The king spoke in a thoughtful, measured voice. Thou didst save me injury and shame, perchance my life, and so my crown. Such serveth demandeth rich reward. Name thy desire, and so it be within the compass of my royal power, it is thine." This fantastic suggestion startled Hendon out of his reverie. He was about to thank the king, and put the matter aside with saying he had only done his duty and desired no reward, but a wiser thought came into his head, and he asked leave to be silent a few moments and consider the gracious offer, an idea which the king gravely approved, remarking that it was best to be not too hasty with a thing of such great import. Miles reflected during some moments, then said to himself, "'Yes, this is the thing to do. By any other means it were impossible to get at. And, certes, this hour's experience has taught me t'would be most wearing and inconvenient to continue it as it is. Yes, I will propose it. T'was a happy accident that I did not throw the chance away.' Then he dropped upon one knee and said, my poor service went not beyond the limit of a subject's simple duty, and therefore hath no merit. But since your Majesty is pleased to hold it worthy some reward, I take heart of grace to make petition to this effect. Near four hundred years ago, as your Grace knoweth, there being ill blood betwixt John, King of England, and the King of France, it was decreed that two champions should fight together in the lists, and so settle the dispute by what is called the arbitrament of God. These two kings, and the Spanish king, being assembled to witness and judge the conflict, the French champion appeared. But so redoubtable was he that our English knights refused to measure weapons with him. So the matter, which was a weighty one, was like to go against the English monarch by default. Now in the tower lay the Lord de Courcy, the mightiest arm in England, stripped of his honours and possessions, and wasting with long captivity. Appeal was made to him. He gave assent and came forth arrayed for battle. But no sooner did the Frenchman glimpse his huge frame and hear his famous name, but he fled away, and the French king's cause was lost. King John restored de Courcy's titles and possessions, and said, Name thy wish, and thou shalt have it, though it cost me half my kingdom. Whereat de Courcy, kneeling, as I do now, made answer, 
this, then, I ask, my liege, that I and my successors may have and hold the privilege of remaining covered in the presence of the kings of England, henceforth while the throne shall last. The boon was granted, as your Majesty knoweth, and there hath been no time these four hundred years that that line has failed of an heir, and so, even unto this day, the head of that ancient house still weareth his hat or helm before the king's majesty, without let or hindrance, and this none other may do. Note, the lords of Kingsall, descendants of de Courcy, still enjoy this curious privilege. End of note. Invoking this precedent, in aid of my prayer, I beseech the king to grant to me but this one grace and privilege, to my more than sufficient reward, and none other, to wit, that I and my heirs for ever may sit in the presence of the Majesty of England. "'Rise, Sir Miles Hendon, knight,' said the King, gravely, giving the accolade with Hendon's sword. "'Rise, and seat thyself. Thy petition is granted. Whilst England remains, and the crown continues, the privilege shall not lapse.' His Majesty walked apart, musing, and Hendon dropped into a chair at table, observing to himself, "'Twas a brave thought, and hath wrought me a mighty deliverance. My legs are grievously wearied, and I had not thought of that. I must have had to stand for weeks till my poor lad's wits are cured." After a little he went on, "'And so I am become a knight of the kingdom of dreams and shadows, a most odd and strange position, truly, for one so matter-of-fact as I. I will not laugh. No, God forbid, for this thing which is so substanceless to me is real to him, and to me also in one way it is not a falsity, for it reflects with truth the sweet and generous spirit that is in him. After a pause, ah, what if he should call me by my fine title before folk? There'd be a merry contrast betwixt my glory and my raiment. But no matter. Let him call me what he will, so it please him. I shall be content. End of chapter 12「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain Chapter 13 The Disappearance of the Prince A heavy drowsiness presently fell upon the two comrades. The king said, "'Remove these rags,' meaning his clothing. Hendon disapparelled the boy without dissent or remark, tucked him up in bed, then glanced about the room, saying to himself ruefully, "'He hath taken my bed again, as before. Marry, what shall I do?' The little king observed his perplexity, and dissipated it with a word. He said sleepily, "'Thou wilt sleep athorp the door, and guard it.' In a moment more he was out of his troubles, in a deep slumber. "'Dear heart, he should have been born a king,' muttered Hendon admiringly. "'He playeth the part to a marvel.' Then he stretched himself across the door, on the floor, saying contentedly, "'I have lodged worse for seven years. T'would be but ill gratitude to him above to find fault with this.' He dropped asleep as the dawn appeared. Toward noon he rose, uncovered his unconscious ward, a section at a time, and took his measure with a string. The king awoke, just as he had completed his work, complained of the cold, and asked what he was doing. 
"'Tis done now, my liege,' said Hendon. "'I have a bit of business outside, but will presently return. Sleep thou again, thou needst it. There, let me cover thy head also. Thou'lt be warmer the sooner.' The king was back in dreamland before this speech was ended. Miles slipped softly out, and slipped as softly in again in the course of thirty or forty minutes, with a complete second-hand suit of boys' clothing, of cheap material, and showing signs of wear, but tidy and suited to the season of the year. He seated himself, and began to overhaul his purchase, mumbling to himself, "'A longer purse would have got a better sort, but when one has not the long purse, one must be content with what a short one may do.' There was a woman in our town, in our town did dwell. He stirred, methinks. I must sing in a less thunderous key. Tis not good to mar his sleep, with this journey before him, and he so wearied out, poor chap. This garment, tis well enough. A stitch here and another one there will set it aright. This other is better, albeit a stitch or two will not come amiss in it, likewise. These be very good and sound, and will keep his small feet warm and dry, an odd new thing to him belike, since he has doubtless been used to foot it bare, winters and summers the same. Would thread were bread, seeing one getteth a year's sufficiency for a farthing, and such a brave big needle without cost for mere love, now shall I have the demon's own time to thread it. And so he had. He did, as men have always done, and probably always will do, to the end of time, held the needle still, and tried to thrust the thread through the eye, which is the opposite of a woman's way. Time and time again the thread missed the mark, going sometimes on one side of the needle and sometimes on the other, sometimes doubling up against the shaft. But he was patient, having been through these experiences before, when he was soldiering. He succeeded at last, and took up the garment that had lain waiting, meantime, across his lap, and began his work. The inn is paid, the breakfast that is to come included, and there is wherewithal left to buy a couple of donkeys, and meet our little costs for the two or three days betwixt this, and the plenty that awaits us at Hendon Hall. She loved her husband. Body of me! I have driven the needle under my nail! It matters little. "'Tis not a novelty, yet tis not a convenience, neither. We shall be merry there, little one, never doubt it. Thy troubles will vanish there, and likewise thy sad distemper. She loved her husband dearly, but another man—these be noble large stitches,' holding the garment up and viewing it admiringly. They have a grandeur and a majesty that do cause these small stingy ones of the tailor-man to look mightily paltry and plebeian. She loved her husband dearly, but another man he loved she. Marry, tis done, a goodly piece of work, too, and wrought with expedition. Now will I wake him, apparel him, pour for him, feed him, and then will we hie us to the mart by the tabard inn in Southwark, and be pleased to rise, my liege. He answereth not. What ho, my liege! Of a truth must I profane his sacred person with a touch, sith his slumber is deaf to speech. What? He threw back the covers. The boy was gone. He stared about him in speechless astonishment for a moment, noticed for the first time that his ward's ragged raiment was also missing, when he began to rage and storm and shout for the innkeeper. At that moment a servant entered with the breakfast. "'Explain, thou limb of Satan, or thy time is come!' roared the man of war, and made so savage a spring towards the waiter, that this latter could not find his tongue, for the instant, for fright and surprise. "'Where is the boy?' 
In disjointed and trembling syllables the man gave the information desired. "'You were hardly gone from the place, your worship, when a youth came running and said it was your worship's will that the boy come to you straight at the bridge-end on the Southwark side. I brought him hither, and when he woke the lad and gave his message, the lad did grumble some little for being disturbed so early, as he called it, but straightway trussed on his rags and went with the youth, only saying it had been better manners that your worship came yourself, not sent a stranger, and so—' "'And so thou art a fool, a fool and easily cousined. Hang all thy breed. Yet mayhap no hurt is done. Possibly no harm is meant the boy. I will go fetch him. Make the table ready. Stay, the coverings of the bed were disposed as if one lay beneath them. Happened that by accident?' "'I know not, good your worship. I saw the youth meddle with them, he that uh, came for the boy.' thousand deaths twas done to deceive me tis plain twas done to gain time hark ye was that youth alone all alone your worship art sure sure your worship collect thy scattered wits bethink thee take time man after a moment's thought the servant said when he came none came with him but now i remember me that as the two stepped into the throng of the bridge a ruffian-looking man plunged out from some near place and just as he was joining them "'What, then? Out with it!' thundered the impatient Hendon, interrupting. "'Just then the crowd lapped them up and closed them in, and I saw no more, being called by my master, who was in a rage because a joint that the scrivener had ordered was forgot, though I take all the saints to witness that to blame me for that miscarriage were like holding the unborn babe to judgment for sins come out of my sight, idiot! Thy prating drives me mad! Hold! Whither art flying? Canst not bide still an instant?' went they towards Sulark? Even so, your worship, for, as I said before, as to that detestable joint, the babe unborn is no whit more blameless than art here yet, and prating still, vanish lest I throttle thee. The servitor vanished. Hendon followed after him, passed him, and plunged down the stairs two steps at a stride, muttering, "'Tis that scurvy villain that claimed he was his son. I have lost thee, my poor little mad master. It is a bitter thought, and I had come to love thee so. No, by book and bell, not lost, not lost, for I will ransack the land till I find thee again. Poor child, yonder is his breakfast, and mine, but I have no hunger now. So let the rats have it. Speed, speed, that is the word.' As he wormed his swift way through the noisy multitudes upon the bridge, he several times said to himself, clinging to the thought as if it were a particularly pleasing one, he grumbled, but he went, he went, yes, because he thought Miles Hendon asked it, sweet lad, he would ne'er have done it for another, I know it well. End of chapter 13 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain, Chapter 14. Le Roi est mort. Vive le Roi. Toward daylight of the same morning, Tom Canty stirred out of a heavy sleep and opened his eyes in the dark. He lay silent a few moments, trying to analyze his confused thoughts and impressions, and get some sort of meaning out of them. Then suddenly he burst out in a rapturous but guarded voice, "'I see it all! I see it all! Now, God be thanked, I am indeed awake at last. Come, joy, vanish sorrow! 
Ho, Nan, bet, kick off your straw, and hie thee hither to my side, till I do pour into your unbelieving ears the wildest madcap dream that ever the spirits of night did conjure up to astonish the soul of man withal. Ho, Nan, I say, bet! A dim form appeared at his side, and a voice said, Will deign to deliver thy commands? Commands? Oh, woe is me, I know thy voice. Speak thou, who am I? Thou? In sooth, yesternight wert thou the Prince of Wales, to-day art thou my most gracious liege, Edward, King of England. Tom buried his head among his pillows, murmuring plaintively, Alack, it was no dream. Go to thy rest, sweet sir, leave me to my sorrows. Tom slept again, and after a time he had this pleasant dream. He thought it was summer, and he was playing all alone in the fair meadow called Goodman's Fields, when a dwarf only a foot high, with long red whiskers and a humped back, appeared to him suddenly, and said, "'Dig by that stump!' He did so, and found twelve bright new pennies, wonderful riches. Yet this was not the best of it, for the dwarf said, "'I know thee! Thou art a good lad, and a deserving. Thy distress shall end, for the day of thy reward is come. Dig here every seventh day, and thou shalt find always the same treasure, twelve bright new pennies. Tell none, keep the secret." Then the dwarf vanished, and Tom flew to Offal Court with his prize, saying to himself, "'Every night will I give my father a penny. He will think I begged it. It will glad his heart, and I shall no more be beaten.' One penny every week the good priest that teacheth me shall have, mother, Nan, and Bet the other four. We be done with hunger and rags now, done with fears and frets and savage usage." In his dream he reached his sordid home all out of breath, but with eyes dancing with grateful enthusiasm, cast four of his pennies into his mother's lap, and cried out, "'They are for thee, all of them, every one, for thee and Nan and Bet and honestly come by, not begged nor stolen." The happy and astonished mother strained him to her breast, and exclaimed, "'It waxeth late! May it please your majesty to rise!' Ah, that was not the answer he was expecting. The dream had snapped asunder, he was awake. He opened his eyes. The richly clad First Lord of the bedchamber was kneeling by his couch. The gladness of the lying dream faded away. The poor boy recognized that he was still a captive and a king. The room was filled with courtiers, clothed in purple mantles, the morning color, and with noble servants of the monarch. Tom sat up in bed, and gazed out from the heavy silken curtains upon this fine company. The weighty business of dressing began, and one courtier after another knelt, and paid his court, and offered to the little king his condolences upon his heavy loss, whilst the dressing proceeded. In the beginning a shirt was taken up by the chief equerry in waiting who passed it to the first lord of the buckhounds, who passed it to the second gentleman of the bedchamber, who passed it to the head ranger of Windsor Forest, who passed it to the third groom of the stole, who passed it to the chancellor royal of the duchy of Lancaster, who passed it to the master of the wardrobe, who passed it to Noroy king-at-arms, who passed it to the constable of the tower, who passed it to the chief steward of the household, who passed it to the hereditary grand diaperer, who passed it to the Lord High Admiral of England, who passed it to the Archbishop of Canterbury, who passed it to the First Lord of the Bedchamber, who took what was left of it, and put it on Tom. Poor little wondering chap! It reminded him of passing buckets at a fire. 
Each garment in its turn had to go through this slow and solemn process. Consequently Tom grew very weary of the ceremony, so weary that he felt an almost gushing gratefulness when he at last saw his long silken hose begin the journey down the line, and knew that the end of the matter was drawing near. But he exulted too soon. The first lord of the bedchamber received the hose, and was about to encase Tom's legs in them, when a sudden flush invaded his face, and he hurriedly hustled the things back into the hands of the Archbishop of Canterbury, with an astounded look, and a whispered, "'See, my lord!' pointing to something connected with the hose. The archbishop paled, then flushed, and passed the hose to the Lord High Admiral, whispering, "'See, my lord!' The admiral passed the hose to the hereditary grand diaperer, and had hardly breath enough in his body to ejaculate, "'See, my lord!' The hose drifted backward along the line to the chief steward of the household, the constable of the tower, Noroy, king-at-arms, the master of the wardrobe, the chancellor royal of the duchy of Lancaster, the third groom of the stole, the head ranger of Windsor Forest, the second gentleman of the bedchamber, the first lord of the buckhounds, accompanied always with that amazed and frightened, "'See! See!' till they finally reached the hands of the chief equerry-in-waiting, who gazed a moment, with a pallid face, upon what had caused all this dismay, then hoarsely whispered, "'Body of my life! A tag gone from a truss-point! To the tower with the head-keeper of the king's hose!' after which he leaned upon the shoulder of the first lord of the buckhounds to regather his vanished strength whilst fresh hose without any damaged strings to them were brought but all things must have an end and so in time tom canty was in a condition to get out of bed the proper official poured water the proper official engineered the washing the proper official stood by with a towel and by and by tom got safely through the purifying stage and was ready for the services of the hairdresser royal. When he at length emerged from this master's hands, he was a gracious figure and as pretty as a girl in his mantle and trunks of purple satin and purple-plumed cap. He now moved in state toward his breakfast-room, through the midst of the courtly assemblage, and as he passed these fell back, leaving his way free, and dropped upon their knees. After breakfast he was conducted with regal ceremony, attended by his great officers, and his guard of fifty gentlemen pensioners bearing gilt battle-axes, to the throne-room, where he proceeded to transact business of state. His uncle, Lord Hertford, took his stand by the throne, to assist the royal mind with wise counsel. The body of illustrious men, named by the late king as his executors, appeared to ask Tom's approval of certain acts of theirs, rather a form and yet not wholly a form, since there was no protector as yet. The Archbishop of Canterbury made report of the decree of the Council of Executors concerning the obsequies of his late most illustrious majesty, and finished by reading the signatures of the executors to it, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Lord Chancellor of England, William Lord St. John, John Lord Russell, Edward Earl of Hertford, John Viscount Lyle, Cuthbert Bishop of Durham, Tom was not listening. An earlier clause of the document was puzzling him. At this point he turned and whispered to Lord Hertford, "'What day did he say the burial hath been appointed for?' "'The sixteenth of the coming month, my liege. "'Tis a strange folly. Will he keep?' Poor chap, he was still new to the customs of royalty. He was used to seeing the forlorn dead of Ophel Court hustled out of the way with a very different sort of expedition. However, the Lord Hertford set his mind at rest with a word or two. A secretary of state presented an order of the council appointing the morrow at eleven for the reception of the foreign ambassadors, and desired the king's assent. Tom turned an inquiring look toward Hertford, who whispered, 
Your Majesty will signify consent. They come to testify their royal master's sense of the heavy calamity which hath visited your grace and the realm of England." Tom did as he was bidden. Another secretary began to read a preamble concerning the expenses of the late King's household, which had amounted to twenty-eight thousand pounds during the preceding six months, a sum so vast that it made Tom Canty gasp. He gasped again when the fact appeared that twenty thousand pounds of this money were still owing and unpaid. Footnote, Hume. End of footnote and once more when it appeared that the king's coffers were about empty and his twelve hundred servants much embarrassed for lack of the wages due them tom spoke out with lively apprehension we be going to the dogs tis plain tis meet and necessary that we take a smaller house and set the servants at large sith they be of no value but to make delay and trouble one with offices that harass the spirit and shame the soul they misbecoming any but a doll that hath nor brains nor hands to help itself withal i remember me of a small house that standeth over against the fish-market by billingsgate a sharp pressure upon Tom's arm stopped his foolish tongue, and sent a blush to his face. But no countenance there betrayed any sign that this strange speech had been remarked or given concern. A secretary made report that, forasmuch as the late King had provided in his will for conferring the ducal degree upon the Earl of Hertford, and raising his brother Sir Thomas Seymour to the peerage, and likewise Hertford's son to an earldom, together with similar aggrandizements to other great servants of the crown the council had resolved to hold a sitting on the sixteenth of february for the delivering and confirming of these honours and that meantime the late king not having granted in writing a state suitable to the support of these dignities the council knowing his private wishes in that regard had thought proper to grant to seymour five hundred pounds lands and to hartford's son eight hundred pounds lands and three hundred pound of the next bishop's lands which should fall vacant, his present majesty being willing. Footnote. Hume. End of footnote. Tom was about to blurt out something about the propriety of paying the late king's debts first, before squandering all this money, but a timely touch upon his arm from the thoughtful Hertford saved him this indiscretion, wherefore he gave the royal assent without spoken comment, but with much inward discomfort. While he sat reflecting a moment over the ease with which he was doing strange and glittering miracles, a happy thought shot into his mind. Why not make his mother Duchess of Offal Court, and give her an estate? But a sorrowful thought swept it instantly away. He was only a king in name. These grave veterans and great nobles were his masters. To them his mother was only the creature of a diseased mind. They would simply listen to his project with unbelieving ears then send for the doctor. The dull work went tediously on. Petitions were read, and proclamations, patents, and all manner of wordy, repetitious, and wearisome papers relating to the public business, and at last Tom sighed pathetically and murmured to himself, "'In what have I offended that the good Lord should take me away from the fields and the free air and the sunshine, to shut me up here, and make me a king, and afflict me so?' Then his poor muddled head nodded a while, and presently drooped to his shoulder, and the business of the empire came to a standstill for want of that august factor, the ratifying power. Silence ensued around the slumbering child, and the sages of the realm ceased from their deliberations. 
During the forenoon Tom had an enjoyable hour, by permission of his keepers, Hartford and St. John, with the Lady Elizabeth and the little Lady Jane Grey, though the spirits of the princesses were rather subdued by the mighty stroke that had fallen upon the royal house, and at the end of the visit his elder sister, afterwards the Bloody Mary of history, chilled him with a solemn interview which had but one merit in his eyes, its brevity. He had a few moments to himself, and then a slim lad of about twelve years of age was admitted to his presence, whose clothing, except his snowy ruff and the laces about his wrists, was of black, doublet, hose, and all. He bore no badge of mourning but a knot of purple ribbon on his shoulder. He advanced hesitatingly, with head bowed and bare, and dropped upon one knee in front of Tom. Tom sat still and contemplated him soberly a moment, and then he said, "'Rise, lad, who art thou? What wouldst have?' The boy rose, and stood at graceful ease, but with an aspect of concern in his face. He said, "'Oh, assurity thou must remember me, my lord. I am thy whipping-boy.' "'My whipping-boy?' "'The same, your grace. I am Humphrey, Humphrey Marlowe.' Tom perceived that here was some one whom his keepers ought to have posted him about. The situation was delicate. What should he do? Pretend he knew this lad? and then betray by his every utterance that he had never heard of him before? No, that would not do. An idea came to his relief. Accidents like this might be likely to happen with some frequency, now that business urgencies would often call Hertford and St. John from his side, they being members of the Council of Executors. Therefore perhaps it would be well to strike out a plan himself to meet the requirements of such emergencies. Yes, that would be a wise course. He would practice on this boy, and see what sort of success he might achieve so he stroked his brow perplexedly a moment or two, and presently said, "'Now I seem to remember thee somewhat, but my wit is clogged and dim with suffering.' "'Alack, my poor master!' ejaculated the whipping-boy, with feeling, adding to himself, "'In truth, tis as they said, his mind is gone, alas, poor soul! But misfortune catch me! How am I forgetting? They said one must not seem to observe that aught is wrong with him.' "'Tis strange how my memory doth wanton with me these days,' said Tom. "'But mind it not, I mend apace. A little clue doth often serve to bring me back again the things and names which had escaped me. And not they only, forsooth, but e'en such as I ne'er heard before, as this lad shall see. Give thy business speech.' "'Tis matter of small weight, my liege, yet will I touch upon it, and it please your grace. Two days gone by, when your majesty faulted thrice in your Greek, in the morning lessons. Doth remember it? Yes, methinks I do. It is not much of a lie. And I had meddled with the Greek at all. I had not faulted simply thrice, but forty times. Yes, I do recall it now. Go on. The master, being wroth with what he termed such slovenly and doltish work, did promise that he would soundly whip me for it, and— Whip thee? said Tom, astonished out of his presence of mind. Why should he whip thee for faults of mine? Ah, your grace forgetteth again. He always scourgeth me when thou dost fail in thy lessons. True, true, I had forgot. Thou teachest me in private. Then I fail. He argueth that thy office was lamely done, and— Oh, my liege, what words are these? I, the humblest of thy servants, presume to teach thee? Then where is thy blame? What riddle is this? Am I in truth gone mad, or is it thou? Explain, speak out. But, good your majesty, there is naught that needeth simplifying. 
none may visit the sacred person of the Prince of Wales with blows, wherefore when he faulteth, tis I that take them, and meet it is, and right, for that it is mine office and my livelihood. Footnote. The Whipping Boy James I and Charles II had whipping boys, when they were little fellows, to take their punishment for them, when they fell short in their lessons. So I have ventured to furnish my small prince with one, for my own purposes. End of footnote. Tom stared at the tranquil boy, observing to himself, Lo, it is a wonderful thing, a most strange and curious trade. I marvel they have not hired a boy to take my combings and my dressings for me. Would heaven they would, and they will do this thing. I will take my lashings in mine own person, giving God thanks for the change. Then he said aloud, And hast thou been beaten, poor friend, according to the promise? No, good your majesty, my punishment was appointed for this day, and peradventure it may be annulled, as unbefitting the season of mourning. That is come upon us. I know not, and so have made bold to come hither and remind your grace about your gracious promise to intercede in my behalf. With the master? To save thee thy whipping? Ah, thou dost remember. My memory mendeth, thou seest. Set thy mind at ease. Thy back shall go unscathed. I will see to it. Oh, thanks, my good lord, cried the boy, dropping upon his knee again. Mayhap I have ventured far enow, and yet, seeing Master Humphrey hesitate, Tom encouraged him to go on, saying he was in the granting mood. Then I will speak it out, for it lieth near my heart. Sith thou art no more Prince of Wales, but King, thou canst order matters as thou wilt, with none to say thee nay. Wherefore it is not in reason that thou wilt longer vex thyself with dreary studies, but wilt burn thy books, and turn thy mind to things less irksome. Then am I ruined, and mine orphan sisters with me. Ruined? Prithee how? My back is my bread, O my gracious liege. If it go idle, I starve. And thou cease from study, mine office is gone. Thou'lt need no whipping-boy. Do not turn me away." Tom was touched with this pathetic distress. He said, with a right royal burst of generosity, "'Discomfort thyself no further, lad. Thine office shall be permanent in thee, and thy line for ever.' Then he struck the boy a light blow on the shoulder with the flat of his sword, exclaiming, "'Rise, Humphrey Marlowe, hereditary grand whipping-boy to the royal house of England. Banish sorrow. I will betake me to my books again, and study so ill that they must in justice treble thy wage, so mightily shall the business of thine office be augmented." The grateful Humphrey responded fervently, "'Thanks, O most noble master! This princely lavishness doth far surpass my most distempered dreams of fortune. Now shall I be happy all my days, and all the house of Marlowe after me!' Tom had wit enough to perceive that here was a lad who could be useful to him. He encouraged Humphrey to talk, and he was nothing loath. He was delighted to believe that he was helping in Tom's cure, for always, as soon as he had finished calling back to Tom's diseased mind the various particulars of his experiences and adventures in the royal schoolroom and elsewhere about the palace, he noticed that Tom was then able to recall the circumstances quite clearly. At the end of an hour Tom found himself well freighted with very valuable information concerning personages and matters pertaining to the court. So he resolved to draw instruction from this source daily, and to this end he would give order to admit Humphrey to the royal closet whenever he might come, provided the Majesty of England was not engaged with other people. Humphrey had hardly been dismissed when my Lord Hertford arrived with more trouble for Tom. 
He said that the lords of the council, fearing that some overwrought report of the king's damaged health might have leaked out and got abroad, they deemed it wise and best that his majesty should begin to dine in public after a day or two, his wholesome complexion and vigorous step, assisted by a carefully guarded repose of manner and ease and grace of demeanour, would more surely quiet the general pulse, in case any evil rumours had gone out, than any other scheme that could be devised. Then the Earl proceeded very delicately to instruct Tom as to the observances proper to the stately occasion, under the rather thin disguise of reminding him concerning things already known to him. But to his vast gratification it turned out that Tom needed very little help in this line. He had been making use of Humphrey in that direction, for Humphrey had mentioned that within a few days he was to begin to dine in public, having gathered it from the swift-winged gossip of the court. Tom kept these facts to himself, however. Seeing the royal memory so improved, the Earl ventured to apply a few tests to it, in an apparently casual way, to find out how far its amendment had progressed. The results were happy, here and there, in spots, spots where Humphrey's tracks remained, and on the whole my lord was greatly pleased and encouraged. So encouraged was he, indeed, that he spoke up and said in a quiet, hopeful voice, now am I persuaded that if your Majesty will but tax your memory yet a little farther, it will resolve the puzzle of the Great Seal, a loss which was of moment yesterday, although of none to-day, since its term of service ended with our late Lord's life. May it please your Grace to make the trial?" Tom was at sea. A Great Seal was a something which he was totally unacquainted with. After a moment's hesitation he looked up innocently and asked, what was it like, my lord?" The Earl started almost imperceptibly, muttering to himself, "'Alack! his wits are flown again. It was ill-wisdom to lead him on to strain them.' Then he deftly turned the talk to other matters, with the purpose of sweeping the unlucky seal out of Tom's thoughts—a purpose which easily succeeded. End of chapter 14 Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.